What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's June 2, 1985, and local authorities have been called to a San Francisco lumber yard to apprehend a shoplifter. By the time police arrive, the suspect has already fled, but the man's partner is still at the scene. As they question him, he tries to talk his way out of the situation. Nothing appears overly suspicious, until a search of the man's vehicle uncovers something incriminating. There are bullet holes in the roof of the car, and a gun fitted with an illegal silencer sits inside. This is grounds enough to take the man into custody. Police bring the man to the station and prepare to question him. They give him a glass of water and leave him alone in a room. When they go to check on him again, the man is unconscious. Left unattended, the man had swallowed a cyanide pill hidden away in his clothing, causing him to slip into a coma. He dies before police ever have a chance to question him. Having taken such drastic measures to get out of being questioned, police grow more curious about what this man could have possibly been hiding. Investigators could not have imagined the gruesome truth they would soon uncover, one that would lead to the resolution of several missing persons cases. I spent 23 years of my career in homicide, worked a lot of murder cases, but this is right at the top of the list of being uh, one of the most difficult to deal with personally. The man was no mere thief. He was one half of a serial killing duo. The pair also had a hidden bunker where they kidnapped, raped, tortured, and murdered men, women, and children. Lake and Ng are a dominant and subservient pair of lust killers. One having the lust fantasy, the other going along with the lust fantasy. Half of the duo is dead, but the other man is still out there. It would become a fight that lasted over 10 years in order to get him put away for good. These two were incredibly cold. They really didn't care. And, and the way that they treated their victims, they humiliated them, they tortured them. This was what they thought was fun. This is What Makes a Killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Leonard Lake and Charles Ng. The story of this unlikely serial-killing duo began in 1945. The elder of the pair, Leonard Lake, was born in San Francisco, California. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says that Lake had a troubled childhood. His family um, have got a, a history of, of working in the U.S. Navy. They, they move around a lot. There's quite a lot of volatility in the family unit, quite a lot of drinking. When he was six, Lake's parents got divorced, and he and his siblings were sent to live with their grandparents. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansel says that while living with them, his grandmother allegedly encouraged some lewd behavior. He, as a boy, had been encouraged by his grandmother to take naked pictures of his sisters 
And I think that this gave him this fixation that meant that he was always, to some extent, wanted to manipulate women. And as a young man, Lake developed more unhealthy urges on his own. He came upon a book called The Collector by John Fowles, and the plot struck a dark chord in Lake. Basically, the story of The Collector was a, a clerk called Frederick Clegg. He collected butterflies. And for some reason, suddenly developed a fixation on a girl called Miranda and decides to abduct Miranda so that she becomes part of his butterfly collection. In 1965, a 19-year-old Lake joined the U.S. Marine Corps. He served two tours in the Vietnam War as a radar operator. I think it tipped him over the edge, the possibility that he would find himself in close combat fighting, and essentially snapped. And that was the genesis of the man that became really a ferocious killer. In 1971, Lake was diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder and was given a medical discharge. He moved to San Francisco and got married in 1975. However, the marriage didn't last long. His wife finally couldn't stand him because he made amateur porn films. A lot of sadomasochism, a lot of bondage. His wife was very upset by that and effectively threw him out. In 1977, Lake met his second wife, a woman named Clara Lynn Balaz, who went by the nickname Cricket. Unlike his first wife, Cricket indulged Lake's desires. Cricket was an active participant in his, again, amateur uh, porn films and appeared in many of them. This is the thing about abusive men like Leonard Lake. They're not abusive all of the time. They're able to charm, they're able to manipulate, they're able to, to spin a good story to people who they want to support them. The other half of the pair was Charles Ng. Ng was born in 1960 in Hong Kong. As a child, Ng was abused by his father who had violent disciplinary methods. It is possible that these actions jump-started Ng's criminal tendencies. One of Ng's releases was to be a kleptomaniac. He stole things. He stole things because it made him feel better about himself. And he did it repeatedly. When he was 15, Ng was sent to a boarding school in England, but things went downhill quickly. Charles Ng's family were, were consistently embarrassed by him. So he was moved around from, from school to school. He ended up at boarding school in Yorkshire, where he, he carried on with this behavior. He did academically well for a while, so he was a child who was quite bright. But he, he just couldn't help himself in terms of stealing and create all of this chaos. And I think he was quite enjoying that. In 1978, an 18-year-old Ng moved to the US on a student visa. He went to California to study, but trouble followed him. In October 1979, Ng was involved in a hit and run. He was arrested and forced to pay for the damages. A year after the incident, Ng lied about his nationality and joined the U.S. Marine Corps. But less than a year after he joined, his old habits resurfaced. In 1982, when by this time Ng was 22, he was arrested for stealing explosives and weaponry. Ng was sentenced to 14 years in military detention in Hawaii. 
It was while he was in jail that Aang formed his unlikely relationship with Leonard Lake. Ing was in military detention and he was reading a, a magazine and there was an ad in this magazine Leonard Lake had placed in there and he responded to this ad. So it was a, a real chance encounter. With a 15-year age gap and nothing but an ad and a magazine to tie them together, it was a dark twist of fate that Ing and Lake ever met. And you wonder, had he not have been reading that particular magazine, had he have been in a different place, that these two would never have come together. But they did meet, and they, they wreaked absolute havoc. Lake's post, advertising weapons he had for sale, appeared to have been the basis of their friendship. As is so often the case, weapons are a fascination to many people, many of whom have a sense of insecurity. They feel that weapons give them a sense of power. So I think that what really linked the two was a fascination with weapons. Ng stayed in touch with Lake, who became a mentor for the young would-be killer. I think what Ng found in him was a kind of surrogate father, someone who would understand him. He was suggestible enough to fall under the spell of a man of a stronger, older disposition, which Lake certainly was. Then in early 1983, Charles Ng escaped from military detention. And the one person he deserted to run away to was Lake, who was living at this point in a mobile home in Northern California. His getaway didn't last long. An FBI SWAT team arrived at Lake's mobile home by helicopter. They raided it and arrested Ng. During the raid, they also made a discovery that would lead to the arrest of Lake illegal firearms. But Lake didn't stay in custody for long. He was freed on bail and then went into hiding in California. Ng, not quite so lucky. He was sent to the U.S. State Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. In 1984, after serving 18 months, Ng was dishonorably discharged and released. The two friends reunited and Ng moved into Lake's new remote ranch in the Northern California wilderness. It was the combination of the two individuals that made them into the terrible killing machine that they became. It was here that their gruesome path was cut. Lake shared his twisted fantasies born from The Collector, and Ng was all too eager to participate. Together, they devised a plan to murder men, women, and even infants on an industrial scale. On the grounds of the two-acre property, Lake had built an underground bunker for his murderous plans. In Calaveras County, east of San Francisco, where, effectively, Lake set up the dungeon that he'd always wanted for his Operation Miranda, where Ng came to join him. Leonard Lake's fearsome fantasy his so-called Miranda plan was another nod to the obsession with his favorite book. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and forensic psychologist Rex Bieber give more insight to Lake and Ng's plan. The Miranda plan was the means by which he was going to be the one who fathered all the new children in the world after the, the nuclear Armageddon had happened and he was in his enclave with all of his sex slaves. That's what he was creating with Ng. And that's what he had been fantasizing for 20 years before he met Ng. 
The project's aim is to capture your ideal woman, enslave her, and have her be your sexual slave until you're done with her, at which time you kill her. In the case of Ng and Lake, the killings involve much more than killings, much more than just sex. They involved torture, they involved the photographing of victims. It was a nightmare that somebody from Hollywood could not dream up for a horror movie. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wamsel adds, Ng arrives, and in a sense, they combust the fantasy because they start saying to each other what we need is to have lots of children to repopulate the world and make better citizens, a kind of a social engineering project through a very odd prism. Ng was a very shy person who himself could not have done this, but happily joined the venture so that he would have a chance of, of the kind of sexuality his shyness made impossible. On July 25th, 1984, Lake and Ng acted on their Miranda plan for the first time. It is believed that their first victims were the Dubs family, Harvey, Deborah, and 16-month-old Sean. Lake and Ng traveled to the couple's San Francisco apartment, seemingly answering an ad for video equipment. Soon after arriving, Lake and Ng likely killed the man and the 16-month-old son. They then abducted and enslaved 33-year-old Deborah Dubbs. Lake and Ng brought her back to the secluded ranch and down to the underground bunker. Ed Erdlatz, who was a homicide inspector with the San Francisco Police Department at the time, remembers the case. In the case of the Dubbs family, they, they took all of their photographic equipment. Mr. Dubbs used to do f- photography work on the side. He abducted his wife and raped her. Lake and Ng kept Deborah prisoner, torturing, defiling, and humiliating her repeatedly. This would set the stage for the awful acts to which they would subject all of their female victims. The women are made to uh, disrobe. They're told they will cooperate or they'll be killed. They construct a one-way mirror so they can watch her. She is literally a specimen, which they can abuse, obviously rape, keep, and even more horrifying, they video it. They video her ordeal, subjecting her to an equally awful, degrading humiliation over a period of weeks. The pair used a hog-tying technique to restrain their abductees. Forensic pathologist Dr. Stuart Hamilton explains how cruel this method was. Hog-tying involves binding the ankles and binding the wrists and neck with somebody face down and their legs bent. So if they try and straighten their legs, it places pressure on the neck. So it is a vicious method of restraining somebody and extremely painful and extremely cruel. They had developed their horrific methods working as a team to carry out the deeds. However, Lake seemed to be the leader of sorts. It's clear that Lake is the one that's giving the instructions and telling uh, Charlie what to do. And if Charlie doesn't do something quick enough, Lake kind of takes him to task. But Ng was a very willing participant. 
And I think Ing, he'd always had these sort of violent fantasies and, and he, he wanted to, to get involved in this kind of thing and now he's able to and he's got somebody to follow. Lake and Ing are a dominant and subservient pair of lust killers. One having the lust fantasy, the other going along with the lust fantasy. The pair derived great pleasure from the terror they were inflicting on their victims. Victims of kidnapping will often try and identify with their, their kidnappers. They'll try and develop a connection with them. They'll, they'll give them information about them. It was never going to work with Lake and Ing because they were emotionally turned off. After weeks of torture, Lake and Ing shot and murdered Deborah. Life means nothing. At that moment that the killing takes place, they can barely understand that this is a living person in front of them. It plays to the, the deepest fears of every woman, that she's simply being subjugated, humiliated, used. She's simply there as a, a plaything of these two men. Eventually they tire and uh, kill her. And forensic psychologist Rex Bieber adds chilling details of what the victims endured. One of the things that they did that is extraordinary is <clears throat> before killing a woman, if the woman had connections, she had a job, she had a husband, they would have the woman in her own hand write a letter saying she was going away, taking a job in another city and wouldn't be coming back. And they sent it to the employer, the friend, the husband, so that they wouldn't know that she was actually missing and dead. This, this is the kind of careful planning that they did. Lake and Ing's bloodlust was not exclusive to enslaving and murdering women for their Miranda plan. They also preyed on single men. Lake was skipping bail and still in hiding after the illegal firearms charge in 1982. To keep his cover, they would randomly kill men, then steal their money, their driver's licenses, and their identities. One of these victims was 34-year-old Randy Jacobson. Unemployed, he had placed an ad to try and sell his van. Most of the murders were committed in Calaveras, but most of the victims were from San Francisco. They were either kidnapped and taken up to Calaveras, or they were lured up there with a promise of work or, or some other incentive. And then they would kill them and murder them, and then began to collect their Social Security-type benefits. In October 1984, shortly after Leonard Lake answered his ad, Randy Jacobson vanished. Another victim in this identity theft scheme was a 38-year-old DJ from San Francisco named Donald Gioletti. He answered an ad posted by Charles Ng for free sex. Jacobson was later found murdered in his own home. He was shot three times. His roommate would later identify Charles Ng as the killer. By the end of 1984, six months since the Miranda plan began, FBI Special Agent Bobby Chacon says Ng and Lake's lust for murder was only growing stronger. Ng and Lake were just the worst possible two to ever get together. I think they fed off each other. I think they both enjoyed what they were doing. Um, and I think their enjoyment by doing it together was actually increased exponentially. Having killed at least five people, 
Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley believes Lake and Ng were becoming a little too comfortable in their murderous doings. Sometimes they get bored, so they start preying on their neighbors. So obviously these are people with families, with friends, with employers who are gonna miss them, who are gonna alert the authorities. But I think it's because they feel invincible at this point in time, and they think they're just gonna keep getting away with it. In April 1985, Lake and Ng were back on the hunt for another target. They needed more women to fulfill their ghastly Miranda plan. This time, they decided to go for more convenient prey. Their neighbor, Brenda O'Connor, her partner, Lonnie Bond, and their one-year-old son, Lonnie Jr. Bond and O'Connor and their son are presumably invited to Lake and Ng's cabin. And pretty speedily, the two dispatch both father and infant son, kill them, and they make the girlfriend, Brenda O'Connor, a prisoner. They kidnapped Brenda O'Connor, and after several weeks of torture, they killed her. On June 2, 1985, in San Francisco, California, Leonard Lake and Charles Ng took a trip to a lumberyard. They were looking to buy some supplies to help them with the vile plan they had been pursuing. Over the course of the previous 11 months, Lake and Ng had kidnapped, raped, tortured, and killed several women for something called the Miranda Plan. They also killed several men and children as collateral damage. So far, their crimes had gone undetected, but that was about to change. While shopping for their supplies, Charles Ng was caught stealing a table vice. The shop owner contacted the police, and Lake and Ng immediately knew they were about to get caught. Without a second thought, Ng fled. Charles Ng goes on the run. He literally just abandons his partner in crime. It's all about his own self-preservation now. Ng ran away. Lake stayed and tried to talk his way out of the shoplifting incident. And the South San Francisco police officer went to the car to recover the vice and also found a 22 pistol in the back. Police discovered that Leonard Lake's firearm was fitted with an illegal silencer. This was enough to make police suspicious. And with that, Leonard Lake was taken into custody. Journalist Jeffrey Wansel and FBI Special Agent Bobby Chacon talk about what happened next. Lake is now in a pretty fragile state. And I suspect realizes that the whole thing is going to unravel. As soon as they brought him in and he asked for a piece of paper and a pencil and you're thinking as an investigator, maybe he's ready to sign a confession. So great, I'll go run and get him a, a piece of paper and a pencil. And then when you come back, he's dead on the floor. Lake had one final trick up his sleeve, one that would allow him to never answer for his crimes. He did not want to go to the electric jail. And so Lake took the precaution of providing for himself cyanide pills in case he was ever captured, which he sewed into his jacket. It's clear that Leonard Lake knew that he would kill himself when he, when he got caught. He did all these terrible things, and he never wanted to stand up and face the consequences of them, so that he was ready and he had those cyanide tablets on him in the event he ever got caught. Lake was dead, but Ng 
was still out there. Both a national and international manhunt for Charles Ng were launched by the FBI and Interpol. At the same time, authorities processed the license plate on the brown Honda that Leonard Lake had parked outside the lumber store. After Leonard Lake kills himself, then they start kind of pulling on the string and everything starts unraveling. Former San Francisco homicide inspector Ed Erdlatz talks about the discovery that was about to crack the case wide open. Subsequently found out that the car had a different switch license plate and the car belonged to Paul Cosner. Paul Cosner was uh, a man who lived in the Marina District in San Francisco, um, last seen alive when he uh, reportedly left the house to show a prospective buyer of his car to take them for a test drive and he was never seen again. A forensic examination of the Honda revealed a single bullet hole in the roof at the front of the car. Blood splatter was clearly present. And the discoveries continued. Investigators also found a driver's license belonging to another San Francisco man who had disappeared. The missing persons detectives from San Francisco were immediately notified. They went down to South San Francisco and Inspector Irene Brunn and Tom Eisenman. So at that time, there was still no involvement uh, in homicide. There were a couple of missing persons cases that were kind of unusual. One was the, uh, this Dubs family, a family of, of three, were missing under very strange circumstances. While searching the brown Honda, investigators also found a utility bill in Lake's ex-wife's name. It was for a place in Calaveras County in Northern California. The detectives traveled to the address and arrived at a ranch with a log cabin, secluded in the wilderness, 150 miles east of San Francisco. They were unaware of the nightmare they were about to uncover. As they walked through the cabin, they noticed a number of odd things. First, they saw a bed with holes drilled in the posts and on the floor. Upon further investigation, it was clear the holes were meant for restraints. But Ed Erdlatz says that's not all that missing persons detectives Irene Braun and Tom Eisenman found. Irene Brunn uh, noticed a VCR and some other electronic equipment that she thought resembled equipment that was missing from the Dubs' home. And she ran the serial number of a couple of those items and sure enough, she got a hit. So she knew at that point not only had she linked Lake and Ng to Paul Cosner in the car, but now she'd linked them into yet another missing person, the, the Dubs family. More and more evidence was piling up, and then the case took an even more hideous turn. Until the missing persons investigators got to the cabin, there was no connection to the Dubs family. So once that link was established, then, then there were a connection to four probably murdered people. What had started as an innocent response to a shoplifting incident was now a mass murder investigation. And Leonard Lake and Charles Ng were the prime suspects. So at that point, the case was transferred from missing persons to homicide. And my partner, Jeff Brosh, and I ended up heading up a team of probably about 20 investigators from San Francisco. On June 5th, 1985, just three days after Lake had killed himself, 
a team of San Francisco and Calaveras County investigators returned to Lake's cabin in the woods. The police get to the cabin and they begin a series of absolutely horrifying discoveries. Armed with a warrant, they searched the underground bunker, or so-called fallout shelter, located next to the cabin. And it was built into the side of the hill. And when you entered this bunker, there was like a workshop and areas where tools were and so on. The walls displayed 21 photos of young women, all in various stages of undress. As detectives continued to comb through the bunker, they discovered a false wall at the back of the workshop. Behind it, another chilling discovery. There was like a cell area that had been built into the back of the bunker, in which we later learned that they would keep uh, female captives there uh, for a period of time uh, before killing them. They discovered the dungeon and the the false room, which is hidden and the two-way mirror and where the women had been kept. Investigators launched a meticulous search of the property, accumulating additional distressing evidence. They discovered two five-gallon drums which had been buried, one of which contains IDs, paraphernalia, for up to 25 people who might have been missing. And the other one contains Lake's journals for 1983 and 1984, and the videotapes of the victims. The video showed vivid and graphic details of the evils that Lake and Ng unleashed upon their victims. You can see how the victims are full of fear and just horrified. And I think they got off on that. That brings it to a whole new level. It was on a horrific level why you would want to tape this stuff. But if you view those tapes, they're quite disturbing. Brenda O'Connor. She had a little baby, and on the video, she is repeatedly uh, distraught and asking Leonard Lake and Charles saying, what have you done with my baby? Where's my baby? It's uh, very difficult to, to watch. And the monstrosities didn't stop there. During the search of the grounds, investigators made a final grisly discovery, human remains. My partner, Jeff Brosh, pretty much stayed up in, up in Calaveras, and he worked with the detectives up there. And what they were doing at that point was uncovering a lot of evidence that had been buried. We know, of course, that the videos and the gun and the journals had been buried, and they began finding more bodies. All in all, detectives found at least 11 bodies buried in shallow graves on the property. There were also fragments that suggested there was a 12th body, though it could not be confirmed. Lake and Ng had also disposed of all the evidence they thought might lead back to them. And what Lake and Ng did is they buried all the contents of their neighbor's cabin in the trench and covered it up. They wanted the authorities to think that Brenda O'Connor, who was the woman with her baby and her boyfriend and a friend, Scott Stapley, had just left the area and moved on. Detectives did their best to identify the dead while also trying to determine cause of death. They definitely shot people. They also, in addition to burying um, a lot of the bodies, they chopped them up and put them in piles and burned them. One of the things that the detectives up in Calaveras were finding a lot of were little small bone chips that had previously been burned. 
believe they had a big bonfire. So in some of the cases, it's hard to definitely determine what the exact cause of death was because the bodies had been, had been so badly burned and chopped up. Investigators were left with 45 pounds of charred remains. After identifying the 11 victims, the remains were determined to be from six men, three women, and two babies. All over the course of just 11 months. With their crimes unearthed, investigators turned their attention to catching the fugitive serial killer, Charles Ng. Ng leaves and runs crosses the border into Canada, Calgary, and where his sister lives. Although half of the murderous duo was dead, investigators were determined to have Charles Ng prosecuted for both of their crimes. On July 6, 1985, in Calgary, Canada, Ng would bring about his own downfall. He shoplifted again. This time, it would lead to his capture. Ng could not shake his childhood habit, and it would lead authorities right to him. It's almost pathetic. He goes and he steals a can of salmon in a supermarket. And a couple of store detectors approach him, and he was armed, and he pulled out his gun and shot one of the store clerks. The security guard manages to hang on to him despite having been shot in the hand, and the police are called. Ing is taken. And then, almost immediately, they realize that they have the man that the American authorities want. Based upon information one of his uh, associates had given to the FBI, we felt he probably had gone across the border up into Canada. So his picture was being distributed up there. Now, Canada, the FBI has international offices in Canada. So when somebody like Ng flees there, the FBI can be on it fairly quickly. But getting Ng back to the United States to face justice wouldn't be an easy task. Due to the incident at the grocery store, it would take years of litigation. Aang actually committed a crime in Canada, so he has to face justice in Canada, like any other criminal would, before they're willing to uh, consider sending him to the U.S. Charles Ng was sentenced to four and a half years for attempted murder and shoplifting. He served his time in Canada and made a desperate attempt to stay in the country. He knew how to make the process work for him, delaying and delaying. He told one of his cellmates, I think, that all I have to do is fire my lawyers and I get another extension. And so he tried that a few times. So he really was able to sit in that Canadian jail and really work the system. When you look at Ng's behavior when he's facing these really serious charges, it's still me, me, me. He's trying to, to dodge extradition. He's, he's trying to kind of create a, a bit of drama around his case. So now that he's incarcerated, he loses quite a lot of control over many things in his life, but he will cling on to those last vestiges of power. So the things that he can exert control over, he's going to. Finally, six years later, in 1991, Ng was sent to California to stand trial for the crimes he committed with Leonard Lake but he wouldn't go down without a fight. By now, he's become very adept indeed at the ways of the law. And he starts a series of battles with the Californian state authorities. And if you look at some of his behavior at this time, it's incredibly arrogant, it's very narcissistic. He's complaining about the length of the commute to the courthouse. He's moaning about the food. He's complaining about a whole host of things that, that he 
feels wronged by, that, that he feels entitled to. So here's somebody who really can't see beyond the end of their own nose. Charles Ng continued his battle to stay out of the courts for another seven painstaking years. He's not going to make a very easy time of it for the people who are looking after him in prison, and he's going to be a nightmare for his lawyers and the legal teams that are involved in this. It took a long time. It was to the families. It was a, a frustrating time. Charles Ng eventually faced trial in October 1998. Leonard Lake had been dead for 13 years. However, Lake had left a series of diaries that were found at the scene of the crime. After deciphering some coded entries, investigators were certain that Lake had committed several murders himself before teaming up with Ng. He would codename a different planned killings or crimes with names. One was Fish, Operation Fish, and we finally determined that in addition to the, the women that Lakening had kidnapped and raped, there was a crime, uh, several murders that Leonard Lake had committed before he and Charles Ng hooked up for their 11-month crime spree. One of these solo murders is believed to be Lake's own brother, Donald, who mysteriously disappeared in April 1983. Another victim was Lake's best man, Charles Gunner, who also vanished in 1983. Although the exact date of his death is a mystery, Gunner's body was found buried on Lake's secluded property in September 1998, just a month before Eng's trial and 15 years after Gunner vanished. We did find, uh, kind of inadvertently found Charles Gunnar's body up on the property, and it was when the uh, I think it was a phone company or PG&E crew came through doing work that some of their equipment uh, unearthed Charles Gunnar's grave. On October 26, 1998, in the Santa Ana, California courthouse, 14 years after his killing spree began, Ng faced trial. A 36-foot-long truck full of evidence was shipped 400 miles south to the courtroom in Orange County in Southern California. Although it was impossible to confirm the 12th burned body, Ng was prosecuted on 12 counts of murder. The evidence was so overwhelming. When you consider the fact that you had him on film with a number of the victims telling them that, that he was going to kill them, along with all of the other evidence that was found, it was a pretty rock-solid case. I went down to Orange County and testified. And in fact, he never made eye contact with me and I never saw him really make eye contact with anybody else. He just kind of looked down the entire time. In February 1999, nearly 17 years after the serial killers began their murderous pursuits, Charles Ng was convicted on 11 counts of homicide. The jury found him guilty of murdering six men, three women, and two infant children. However, the jury could not come to an agreement on the 12th body, claiming there just wasn't enough evidence to convict him on that count. Charles Ng was sentenced to death. He currently sits in San Quentin State Prison in California. When, if ever that ever happens, is anybody's guess. But that's where he is. But at least he's locked away. I don't think he'll ever get out. 
More than 30 years later, the memories of the murders Leonard Lake and Charles Ng committed still plagued those who worked on the case. I spent 23 years of my career in homicide, worked a lot of murder cases, but this is right at the top of the list of being uh, one of the most difficult to deal with personally. After a while, you become somewhat hardened, I guess, but when you're dealing with uh, small children or babies, they're just innocent people taken advantage of and abducted. And then you see the horror that they go through. Then to actually see a woman begging for her, her baby and asking for her baby, uh, that's uh, very unusual and very difficult to, to deal with. When I look at the Lake and Inn case, we've got a meeting of two incredibly twisted minds here, and together they created this alternative, depraved reality. But I think the scariest thing is these two weren't mad. They weren't crazy. They knew exactly what they were doing, and yet they chose to do it anyway. And the thought of, of people deciding and choosing to do the things they did really does chill me to the bone. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. The series is produced by Audio Boom's Karen Bevan, Pam Burrows, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Lauren Vogel, and by Nick Mavridekis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel. And for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to those involved with the case and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at RAIN.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite pods. If you have some time, we would appreciate a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... In October 2012, in the small town of McKinleth, Wales, investigators searched for a five-year-old girl who went missing. She was last seen entering the car of someone she knew. We were still hoping that she'd be alive, so it was very much speeders of the essence, so you had to ensure that you were doing as much as you could, as quickly as you could, in an effort to identify where she was. But when investigators searched the man's house, they were quickly met with an unimaginable scene. Bridger had begun to assemble a collection of particularly nasty child pornography, as well as photographs of local children, including April and her elder sister. <laughs>